One of the interesting uh, cultural issues uh, we learned about in, in China was how much they don't like gray hair. Uh, apparently, uh, no offense, Linda, uh, apparently in a, in a secular society where length of life is everything and youth is everything, they really don't want to look old or think about being old or that sort of thing, so pretty much everybody dyes their hair. And uh, I, I, I felt better about that because when I learned that, because uh, in my class there were a couple of pastors who were my age, and one of them had the, the nicest bunch of black hair, and I thought, boy, that's just not right. And uh, of course, dyeing my hair would only be half the problem. So, so you know, I've considered a solution. <laughs> how, many, how many of you think, yeah, go for it? <laughs> All right! And how many think, don't do that ever? <laughs> Woo! Let's, let's just think about it for a minute. <laughs> I'm glad. What's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it makes me look like something, I tell you what. <laughs> Why is it that when women wear wigs, it's, you know, it's uh, fashionable, it's, it's uh, smart, it's efficient, and when a man wears a wig... He's hiding something. He's trying to regain his youth. I'm glad that my hair is just a decoration and not an indication of who I am. What we're going to learn from Matthew 5 today is that who I am is much deeper than how we look. Turn with me to Matthew 5, or let's read there the Beatitudes. And seeing the multitude, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're looking at verse number 8 today. Blessed are the pure in heart. And for those of you that haven't been here in our other studies, the word blessed means happy. And, and of course, this is not so much Christ's ticket to happiness as it is his description of what it means to be an authentic believer and what are the results of being an authentic believer in Him? And we're going to understand today that authentic Christianity is the opposite of self-righteousness. And it involves our heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Christ makes it clear that His followers must have a pure heart. But what does it mean to have a pure heart? Is it good enough to have good intentions? We can start to understand a pure heart by first of all looking at the opposite, which is not a wicked heart, but a natural heart. The natural heart 
has certain characteristics, and one of them, first and foremost, is that the natural heart wants the approval of other people. We read this from later in the Gospel of Matthew, speaking about the Pharisees who were very religious. Their religious activity was based in the Old Testament law, but it it also went outside of that and, and beyond that in some ways that were not godly. But all their works, all of their religious works, they do for the purpose of being seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garment. The word phylactery is obviously not one you and I use every day, but it referred to a little box that would contain a piece of paper or some writing material with a part of the word of God on it. And they based this out of Deuteronomy 6, in which God was telling them that the word of God should just be with them all the time. And they took it literally to mean strap it on your hand and strap it on your forehead. And so because they wanted to be really, really religious, because they wanted other people to say, wow, you are something, they made their little boxes big. So people would really notice that they had the word of God tied on their forehead and tied on their hand. They love the best places at a feast. They love the best seat in the synagogue. There were places in that day, in that culture, when you would go to, say, your neighbor has a big dinner and invites a bunch of people. Whoever he invited to sit on his left hand and especially his right hand, those were the most important people. He didn't have to stand up and say, this guy's my best friend. The fact that he was sitting there meant he was the best friend. Or if they went to the synagogue, the place of worship for the, for the Jews in the time of Christ, they would be given a seat near the teacher, whereas other people would sit on the floor or stand in the corner. And they, they did that. They loved the best places at the seats. They loved to be greeted in the marketplace. Hello, brother, how are you doing today? My, your phylactery is big. I don't suppose they actually said that, but they loved to be recognized. They loved to be recognized. And everybody knows brother so-and-so. They loved the greetings in the marketplace. They loved to be called rabbi, rabbi, which means teacher, teacher. In other words, you're the expert. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They were concerned about what people thought. They, they did things to get attention, and here they did things to avoid the wrong kind of attention. What is a natural heart like? A natural heart wants the approval of other people. And so sometimes people will be religious. People will come to church. People will give to the toy drive. They will do this or do that to appear to be good because they want the attention, the positive attention of other people. We do this in many ways that are not religious as well. We dress a certain way. We put a certain thing on our head or remove our hair or whatever we do, makeup or natural, old clothes, new clothes, you know, all these different things so that people will say, my, you are just fine. We want people to notice what we do, how well we do it, how creative we are. 
It is our natural-born pride as human beings. But the natural heart doesn't just want the approval of others. The natural heart wants to look good while doing wrong. I mean, that's the essence of being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not doing the right thing when you're when you're feeling a little bit pressed to do the right thing. The hypocrite is doing the right thing to cover up wrong stuff in the heart. Listen to this, what Jesus said to these Pharisees, woe to you, or, or trouble is coming to you. you. You deserve bad things, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. In the day of Christ, those who were financially able would have a family tomb. It would be similar to maybe what you see in some places, not too much in the West Coast, but say in the Southeast, where they build, there they would build a big uh, family tomb out of uh, marble or something like that. Here they would carve it into a hillside. They would have the stone, they would roll in front of it, like the tomb that Jesus was buried in. And they would bury a person, and then later on, they'd roll the stone back and put the next person, and so on. It was the family grave. And they would paint the front of the family grave so it looked nice. And Jesus said, people who put on behaviors but don't mean it in their heart are like a whitewashed grave. It's full of death, but they're trying to put a good front on it so it looks good. Getting a little more specific, the Apostle Paul put it this way when he talked about what people naturally do. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of self. A whole list, a litany of terrible things that you can do. But look at this, having a form of godliness. People will do all these bad behaviors and yet maintain a certain element of religion in their life. But the net effect is they deny the, the real power of it. In other words, people will come to church, but they aren't worshiping God. People will come to church, but they aren't coming so they can learn and go out of church and be a Christ-like person. They're coming to church or they're doing religious activities or, or doing good works so that people will think they're good and that their true impure heart will be covered up. Here's a particularly ugly example of that. Beware of the scribes. Those were the legal experts in the Old Testament who desire to go around in long robes. They love the greetings in the marketplace, the best seat in the synagogue, the best places at the feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Do you understand the, the contrast here? These people would come along and say, oh, widow so-and-so, you owe money. Sorry, I'm taking your house. And then they would turn around and go to church and go, Oh God, you know how much I love you and serve you. And the people in church go, My brother so-and-so really has it going on. And just a minute ago, he was taking a widow's house away from her. 
The natural heart wants to look good while doing wrong. That's what God calls self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when people make a standard and then live up to it and declare themselves to be righteous by that standard. And, given their logic, if their standard is the standard, they are righteous. But there's a problem with that. The Apostle Paul faced this with false teachers. He said, he said speaking of himself, we do not dare class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. You see, it's, it, it, it would be like me, come down here, here Wayne, stand up here a minute, and, Here's Wayne and say, Wayne, you're a fine man. And Wayne says to me, you're a fine oh, man. Oh, you're, you're a fine man. We're good men. We're, 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 better, we're better than these people. <laughs> and you say, that's, we right. Sure, that's right, we sure are. <laughs> that's right, yeah. And look at those people over there. Oh, my gosh, they're way down the scale. Yeah, yeah. And they had their little club, and they had their standards, and they met their standards, and so everybody else was, huh. Apostle Paul said, I do not compare myself to myself. And I don't have a couple of friends that I compare myself. Who did the Apostle Paul compare himself to? Christ. And when he did that in Philippians chapter 3, what did he say? He said, well, I've made a few steps of progress, but i got a ways to go. And you know what? The Apostle Paul always had a ways to go. Right up until the day that he met Jesus face to face. But the natural heart, the natural heart wants to put on some good behavior and have certain standards that are achievable while maintaining wickedness. But there's a problem with our heart, and that's this. The natural heart is sinful. The natural heart isn't just having a hard time. The natural heart is sinful. Listen what David said. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And this is not talking about some kind of sexual sin of her mother and, and of his mother and father. He's saying, I was a sinner from the time I was born. I tell you what, folks, I've got smart, funny, and cute grandchildren. Now, if you don't believe it, you just hang around after church. But I know for a fact they're born with a sin nature. I know it for a fact, like David who wrote this psalm, and I know it for a fact about myself. Why do I know that? I know it, first of all, because of what the Scripture says. Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. You want to know how I know that all men are sinners? Because all men die. God said, Adam, if you sin, you're going to die. And Adam died, and every man since then has died, save the, the uh, couple that the Lord has chosen to take to heaven without that, and Jesus Christ himself. But Adam died, and we die because of our sin. And, is it, and if that isn't enough, look at this. We were by nature the children of wrath. We are not by nature the children of God. God is not the father of all people, except in the sense of being the creator of the universe. 
And the evidence of this truth is as near as our own behavior. From within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications or other sexual sin, murder, theft, coveting, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And you know, our, our, our sinful hearts tend to look at that and go, well, I, I don't do m- most of those, so I'm better than those people or those people because I don't do, those are bad sins. I just do little sins. Well, the Apostle Paul expands on this list when he says the works of the flesh are evident, which are the really bad sins. And then he says idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contention, not getting along, jealousy, outburst of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension or creating divisive groups, heresies, wrong doctrine, Last night, I had a chance to see one of the world's cutest little granddaughters, and I had a chance to see her demonstrate her sin nature. I would say jealousy, outburst of wrath, and selfish ambition were plainly evident in her three-year-old life. It doesn't give me any joy to say that, but it's true. It's true. You can cover up your sinful heart with good deeds, just like I could cover up my bald head with a toupee, but the baldness doesn't go away. What the natural heart needs is cleansing, and that's the word used In Matthew 5, verse 8, blessed are the cleansed hearts. The word that's used there is is a Greek word, katharos. We get our word catharsis from it. It means something that has been cleansed. There's other words in the New Testament that mean just to be free of contamination, but this word emphasizes something that has been cleansed. This is a perfect word for this because God is the one who cleanses our hearts looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and cleanse, purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. How do you get cleansed? How do you get your heart made new? It comes from God. The purification of our hearts is so complete that God talks about it like having a new heart. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says, I'm going to cleanse you. How does he cleanse us? He cleanses us by removing our sin. This change is so complete that he describes it as being a new creation. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. Jesus himself put it this way, unless unless you are born again, 
You cannot enter the kingdom of God. We don't need to do a bunch of good deeds. We don't need to to cover up our sinful heart. We need to have our heart cleansed. How does that happen? As many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Has your heart been cleansed today? Are you here with a clean heart or are you wearing a spiritual toupee? You don't need to cover up your heart. No matter how wicked you think your heart has been, you don't need to cover it up. You need to believe in Christ, to speak with God, even now while I'm preaching and say, Father, I'm a sinner. You can see my dirty heart. I know I cannot save myself. I receive Christ as Savior. I believe in Him as your eternal Son who died for me. Please take away my sin and give me a clean heart. Now once you've prayed that prayer, which many of you here have prayed, you become a child of God and your heart is pure before God, but it needs nurturing. It needs nurturing. And the first way that we nurture our heart is by feeding it pure truth as a, and and the, the apostle paul wrote to timothy and told him what to do as a pastor he said i urged you when i left and went to macedonia you stay in ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine no wrong doctrine no unbiblical doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies these were common religious ideas of the day which cause disputes rather than godly edification or being built up in Christ. Now the purpose of this commandment is love. From a cleansed heart, a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith. You want to keep your heart clean? You want your heart to continue to be right with God? Feed it the word of God. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation as in you can come to Christ in faith and be saved and then lose it when you sin. No, God says once you have been cleansed, you stand before God in a position of purity. But as you live your life, you're going to make sinful choices and you need to confess and be made right based on the word. The Word needs to feed you. The Word needs to change you. The Word needs to consistently scrub your heart. But it's not just about knowledge. The pure heart must be fed pure truth, but a pure heart must be exercised through obedience. Since you have purified your soul, there's our word, you have a pure soul, a pure heart, in obeying the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently. The Apostle Paul said, you have come into saving faith. Your hearts have been purified. Now keep on doing it. Keep on obeying. One of the values of physical exercise is that your heart, which is a muscle, has to work harder to pump blood that carries oxygen through your body. And as it does this work under exercise, under the physical stress of exercise, it gets stronger and it pumps better and it takes less times pumping to push the blood through your heart and that's called aerobic exercise when you're exercising your circulatory system. 
That's one of the important aspects of physical exercise. Your spiritual heart grows stronger as you obey God's instructions. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody else to teach you again the first or the elementary principles of the Word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. The the writer of Hebrews is writing to these people saying, you should be teaching the Bible by now. But instead of that, you're, you're sitting there saying, give me something easy to understand. And he said, you ought to be teachers. Well, what was the problem? Everyone who constantly only takes in the milk of the word is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food, the real meat of God's word, belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Spiritual exercise affects your spiritual mind and your heart and your life. The only way to lift a heavy object is to build up strength. Now, this isn't a heavy object. But if I was to put a 100-pound weight down here and ask Wayne to come up and lift it, then I'd say, Wayne, you're not very strong, are you? (laughs) I'd make fun of him because I couldn't lift it. But the way to lift a heavy weight is to lift smaller weights A lot of times, a lot of times, get a little bigger weight, a lot of times, a lot of times, and gradually you work your way up till you can get a hold of that big weight and pick it up. We know that's how we get stronger. There's no mystery there. The person who wants to become a fast runner runs and runs and runs. They do slow runs and fast runs and all kinds of runs, and over time they become faster. Over time the weightlifter becomes stronger. The only way to become spiritually strong is to obey God in every little way all the time. And as you do that day by day by day, at some point you'll come and look back and go, how did I get here? Man, it is so great to be walking with the Lord. And you will realize, look where the Lord has brought me. That's part of what Paul talked about in Philippians 3 as well. He said, I've looked back in my life, and there's a lot of stuff back there I don't even care about anymore. I'm so glad to be where I am. I still have a ways to go. Are you exercising your spiritual heart? When you hear the word of God, do you go out and say, how can I practice that? How can I do that? Do you know, if you're like me, God will give you an opportunity to practice after you hear the word taught. God gives me opportunities sometimes before I even stand up here. While I'm studying during the week, some circumstance comes up and all of a sudden I go, oh, that's what I'm getting ready to stand up and say and the Lord wants me to actually do that. That's kind of harsh. I'm just the teacher. I'm not the doer. Of course not. God wants me to practice what I preach because it's good for me. What value is there to me standing up here trying to put the spiritual toupee on, make myself look like I'm something, and not actually be walking with the Lord? Exercise, spiritual exercise, doing God's work in our lives makes us stronger. Now, this, this instruction about having a pure heart comes with a blessing. And the blessing is this, the pure heart enables us to stand in God's presence. 
Look at what, he, what Jesus said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. Look at how David said it in the Psalms. Lord, who can abide or stay in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now he's using the images that, that he knew about, the image of a, a place of worship called the tabernacle, and also the place called Jerusalem, which is on a hill. It's, it's not like on a mountain as we conceive of mountains, but as the terrain is around it, it's up high. And so he refers to that, and that's the place uh, where the place of worship. Who can be in the place of your presence, in the place of worship? The one who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. The one whose heart is right with you. Hebrews 12 puts it this way, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now there's both an ultimate and an immediate impact of purity on our vision of God. And the ultimate would be this. If we are in our sin when we die, then the only view of God we will ever have will be as our judge and executioner on our way to hell with the devil. You know that hell, hell is the place prepared for the devil. People talk about going to hell, you know. I'm going to go to hell and be with all my friends. No, you're going to go to hell and be with the devil and all of his friends. And if hell is something God has prepared for the devil, how terrible must it be? If you want to see God, if you want to see God, you need to be right with God. You need to have a cleansed heart. Hebrews 19 puts it this way, having boldness, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Again, the author of Hebrews is using the imagery from the Old Testament. They, they had this huge complex that we refer to as the tabernacle, but actually the, the place of the presence of God was a relatively small place inside the tent, which we usually refer to as the holy of holies, or here it's called the holiest or the holiest place. And God made his presence known there by the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire. And you know, God, of course, is much bigger than that, but he made his presence known. And he also made it known that only the high priest could go into there once a year. Only the high priest with the blood of the sacrifice was able to go. And, and even that person had to have a rope tied on his leg so that if he was struck dead by God for coming in in an unprepared fashion, they could pull him back out. Nobody else could go in after him because the same thing would happen to them. Now, that's pretty harsh. But God was trying to tell people, look, you have to be pure before you come into my presence. And so here the writer of Hebrews says, now, because of the sacrifice of Christ and the taking away of our sin, the forgiveness and the cleansing of our heart, we can come right into the holiest because of the blood of Christ. The ultimate sense in which this beatitude is true is just that. If your heart has been cleansed, you will be with God forever in eternity. You will see God. You will be in his presence. But there is also, there is also an immediate sense of this vision of God. 
When we have a pure heart through faith in Christ, we are ready to look God in the face. That Hebrews 19 passage goes on to say this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated or inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled or cleansed from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is he saying? He's saying, as a believer in Christ, I can come right up into the presence and say, Heavenly Father, I have a concern. Heavenly Father, I have a praise. Just as as I did this morning and hopefully you did together with me. We prayed. We expressed our praise to God. We did that through our songs. We said, thank you and, and, and praise to you. One commentator put it this way. Without holiness... No man will see the Lord in heaven. The beatitude vision is only possible here on earth to those with pure hearts. No one else can see the king now. Sin befogs and beclouds the heart so that one cannot see God. A.T. Robertson, writing many years ago, writes in poetic language, sin befogs and beclouds the heart so that one cannot see God. I've had many unbelievers over the years come to me and ask for prayer. And they'll say something like, you know, you you got a connection to the guy upstairs. And they clearly know that they do not. And they're right. I do have a connection. I am ready to pray. And they are not. They are wise to realize that their prayers are not getting past the roof. But the error is in them asking me to pray rather than them getting their heart right with God so that they can come and look God in the face and say, oh God, I have a need. Is sin befogging and beclouding your heart, believer, Or are you looking straight into the face of God? Do you know that God kept us from possessing any pictures of Jesus? You know, that's not an accident. Part of it is the timing with which Christ came. There was obviously no photography. But there also was not realistic painting. There was sculpture. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, Nobody even thought enough of Jesus to make a sculpture of him. I mean, they made a sculpture of of Nero. Of course, he probably paid for it to be done. And other people like that. Nobody even made a sculpture. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. I hate to burst your bubble, but that picture you have on your wall, just somebody's idea. Okay? And why is that? Because the way we see God is through our spiritual heart and mind as we approach him based on the blood of Christ and and we come to know God. I, I have no visual image of God. I have no 
picture that I imagine when I pray, but yet somehow I feel like I know him. I feel like I've seen him. And I come and pray, and the reason is because he made my heart pure, and because he continues to make it pure when I confess my sin. And I just turn to him and talk. I had the greatest time on Thursday. I went to, to my old church in Tukwila for the ordination of Ethan Mulsey. Ethan and Melissa are missionaries going to Togo. Um, you remember they were here with us not too long ago. Melissa is a doctor. Ethan is a seminary graduate and has a degree in business. And they anticipate being involved in the hospital ministry and medicine and possibly in administration and also in training pastors and church planning and that sort of thing. And, and uh, when you get ordained in our circles, it's done by the local church, but they call in other pastors and laymen to come help examine the candidate to see if he really knows the Bible and if his life seems to really demonstrate the call of God to the ministry. And so the person writes, the, the, the candidate writes a doctrinal statement, a, a summary of, of all the major areas of doctrine, and then we uh, take our Bibles and ask him questions and see how he does. And, and Ethan did a fine job. He wrote a good statement. He did a good job answering the questions. Uh, he, you know, people shared testimonies about him from the local church that were really strong and a blessing. And, and as I sat there and, and reflected on him and on Melissa, and she shared her testimony as well. And, and you know, I thought, boy, there, there's Melissa, you know, she... Uh, I don't know what a primary care physician makes, but I, I, I think they do okay. And I'm pretty sure a missionary doctor makes less. And I'm pretty sure it's a whale of a lot hotter in the north part of Togo than it is in Seattle. And I'm pretty sure, even though they build a decent house to live in, that it's not going to be as comfortable as the one here. And I'm pretty sure they're not going to have access to the same kind of things in their environment that they would have here, i.e. the South Center Mall. And uh, even the airport is going to be a two-day trip away. I mean, you go on and on with that. And I look at a guy like Ethan. Ethan was in business, uh, was you know, in business management before he went to seminary. Even at the seminary, while he was a student, he was the business manager for the seminary. He's obviously a capable person. Uh, aside from his spiritual qualifications. And yet they have chosen to give their lives in service in our place in Togo, West Africa. Are they just naturally good people? Nope. Nope. They are not naturally good people. They are born again people. They are people who came to faith in Christ whose hearts have been cleansed by God, they are people who continue to daily seek cleansing from God and who continue daily to say, God, I'll just do what you want me to do today. I would ask you today, is your heart pure today? Having a pure heart is not a product of being a great person. It's a product of having a great Savior God wants you to have a pure heart. That's why he sent Christ. And there's no sin which can keep that from happening because Jesus paid for them all. 